Hello, everybody. It's potting through time. We're now a we're now a European opera. We're no longer a podcast. Welcome. We're gonna do weirdly nationalistic glorifications of the German nation, just like Wagner. Indeed. So, <laughs> um, <laughs> here we go. Today we've got a nice little lineup for you. We are going to go through some delicious, delicious topics. Uh, the first of which is Taskin. Taxin. Taxin. Tax, Taxin the Great. Then we're going to go into the Gospel of Jacob, in which Jacob brings up, and all I have here uh, on the sheet is Portugal and Africa. Yeah, that's is, exactly what we're going to be talking about. <laughs> which is, I'm afraid, but I'm my body's you, ready. You should be. It's It's kind of grim, but like, you know. We'll make it through. Okay, okay. I, I, I can steal myself for that. Uh, then I'm going to talk about Easter Island extinction. Uh, am I talking about the, the trees or the people? You're going to find out, aren't you? Oh, I, and... I guess I will. I don't even know because all I know is we talked about this topic a long time ago. There mm-hmm. were some changes made to whatever Evan was thinking before, and now it's something slightly different. And I don't, I don't. Yes. I don't know. <laughs> You'll, you will learn. Uh, and then, now we're gonna go over uh, current events. There's one very obvious current event. Yeah, we're I'm all sure at home. Uh, <laughs> you might be able to guess, and it is clearly because of Joe Biden winning the. No, it's uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, coronavirus and its relation to the 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 plague that everyone is comparing it to, the 1918 pandemic. Look at that, politically correct. He's not calling it the Spanish flu. Yeah, good job, good job. And then. <laughs> And then uh, the Kung Fu virus and the Spanish flu are very similar. <laughs> or what's it called? The Kung flu. The Kung flu and the Spanish Kung flu. flu. Is that what they're calling it? Is that what they're calling it? Donald Trump, I think, made a joke about saying about how calling it the Kung flu wasn't racist, I think. I <laughs> Which is incredible I'm and intrigued. hilarious. <laughs> and all I have to say is calling it the Kung flu is only as racist as calling the Spanish flu the Spanish flu is. So... As long as people are still saying Spanish flu, we should be allowed to say Kung flu because it's incredible. Oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to cut it off right there. <laughs> All right. <laughs> now we're going to talk about um, dinosaurs and Jurassic China. Yeah. So uh, we don't we don't get a lot of responses, but we reserve this response time. Except one time a long time ago, it was requested that I talk about a paleontology internship I had. And... Uh, I like dinosaurs a lot and so far have not talked about dinosaurs. And I told Evan today we were going to talk about dinosaurs. So we're going to do that. I'm on board. He totally didn't tie me up and force me. Do, do, do. Do, do, do. Potting through time. Potting the unnamed time. history do, podcast. Do. <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> so why don't we get started? Jacob, would you like to read the Wikipedia entry? Yeah. So first, a little backstory. Why tax in the great? Who is that? I am a Westerner and do not know these things. Um, so anyway, tax in the great uh, is someone that I read about a long time ago on this website called Badass of the Week that many history buffs might know on the Internet. Incredible. Um, and I sent it to one of my friends in Thailand, and he's like, yeah, he's one of our big historical figures. And I'm like, whoa, I've never heard of him. So apparently, for at least part of the world, 
Taxon the Great is a huge deal. And I thought it would be fun to actually go into him a little bit because, you know, we hear about approximately nothing about him except from in online articles that we run across randomly. Entirely 0% about him. Yes. So we'll read the, the Wikipedia intro for him. Taxon the Great. Um, I'm not going to read that long Thai word. Or the King of Tonburi was the only king of the Tonburi kingdom. He had been an Ekatat servant and then was a leader in the liberation of Siam from Burmese occupation after the second fall of Ayutthaya in 1767 and the subsequent unification of Siam after it fell under various warlords. He established the city of Tonburi as the new capital as the city of Ayutthaya had almost completely had been almost completely destroyed by the invaders. His reign was characterized by numerous wars. He fought to repel new Burmese invasions and to subjugate the northern Thai kingdom of Lana, the Laotian principalities, and a threatening Cambodia. Although warfare took up most of Taxon's time, he paid a great deal of attention to politics, administration, economy, and the welfare of the country. He promoted trade and fostered relations with foreign countries, including China, Britain, and the Netherlands. He had roads built and canals dug. Apart from restoring and renovating temples, the king attempted to revive literature and various branches of the arts such as drama, painting, architecture, and handicrafts. He also issued regulations for the collection and arrangement of various texts to promote education and religious studies. He was taken in a coup d'etat and executed and succeeded by his longtime friend, Mahaksayatriyasuk, who then assumed what? the... Th throne, founded the Ratanakosin kingdom and the Chakri dynasty, which has since ruled Thailand. In what? recognition for what he did for the Thais, he is later awarded the title of Maharaj the Great. Well, at least they gave him that. Yeah, I I mean, it's good to good to recognize the saviors of the country, but but what? <laughs> As stated earlier, what? <laughs> he got done dirty <laughs> by the current ruling family. Which raises an interesting question, because if, if your ruling family overthrew the savior of your country, there might be some interesting questions in your national history there. Yeah, this guy single-handedly <laughs> saved Thailand and, and made its independence, was killed by his longtime friend, and that longtime friend to this day's descendants still own the country. <laughs> Man, he got done dirty. But why was he done dirty? This is the question. And uh, this is what we decided to look further into today. Because, well, apparently there's some some uh, tea. So let's, let's hear the tea. Mm. This is from the final years and death section of the Wikipedia article, if anyone's following along. Thai historians indicate that the strain on him took its toll, and the king started to become a religious fanatic. In 1781, Taksin showed increasing signs of mental trouble. He believed himself to be a future Buddha, expecting to change the color of his blood from red to white. As he started practicing meditation, he even gave lectures to the monks. More seriously, he was provoking schism in Siamese Buddhism by requiring that the monkhood should recognize him as a sotapanna, or a stream winner, a person who has embarked on the first of the four stages of enlightenment. Monks who refused to bow to Taksin and worship him as god were demoted in status, and hundreds were who refused to worship him 
as such, were flogged and sentenced to menial labor. Economic tension caused by war was serious. As famine spread, looting and crimes were widespread. Corrupt officials were reportedly abundant. According to some sources, many oppressions and abuses made by officials were reported. King Taxon punished them harshly, torturing and executing high officials. Discontent among officials could be expected. Several historians have suggested that the tale of his insanity may have been reconstructed as an excuse for his overthrow. However, the letters of a French missionary who was in Tonburi at the time support the accounts of the monarch's peculiar behavior, which reported that he, Taxon, passed all his time in prayer, fasting, and meditation in order by these means to be able to fly through the air. Again, the missionaries described the situation. For some years, the king of Siam has tremendously vexed his subjects and the foreigners who dwelt in or came in to trade in his kingdom. Last year, 1781, the Chinese, who were accustomed to trade, found themselves obliged almost to give it up entirely. This past year, the vexations caused by the king, more than half mad, have become more frequent and more cruel than previously. He has had imprisoned, tortured, and flogged according to his caprice, his wife, his son's faction, even the heir presumptive, and his high officials. He wanted to make them confess to crimes of which they were innocent. I As like before how again, you... reading, that's a lot to talk no, about. I like, I like... <laughs> okay. I like how you just like every TV show that does something in France just substituted a French accent for a British one for no reason. <laughs> French missionary. Ah, yes. I guess he's from London then. I see... In the vein of the History Channel, I have to just read because you know, you know, you get two types of history documentaries: the ones where they aim for culture, where it's like, "Who is this talking now?" and the ones where they aim for the fanciest sounding person possible to read things. Of course, <laughs> unless it's a Bible verse, then it's just this booming voice, like, "But in my house, we shall serve the Lord," or something like that. But just an anyway, angry, angry Jewish man. <laughs> Anyway, this this Taxon uh, apparently had uh, some historiographically questionable issues. Indeed. So, I guess, I guess deification um, is one thing that we all aim for, right? We all want that. It's tough to be a god. I'd like to be deified. It's tough to be a god. Tread where mortals have not trod. Be deified when really you're a sham. Mm. Yeah, very hard. Very hard. <laughs> uh, the... <laughs> The the first of the four stages of enlightenment truly is. That's that's big stuff because, I mean, in Theravada Buddhism, as I understand it, you don't achieve enlightenment without being a monk and going through all the monkey stuff. So the fact that he is asserting that he has moved faster through this process than his monks and is giving them lectures is a big middle finger to all those who have followed the sangha for their lives. Yeah, I'd be a pretty I'd be a pretty angry monk boy too if uh if the entire devotion of my life just got completely supplanted by some crazy king that I I <laughs> that I've never met and, and and don't know. What, you saved the country, now you think you can save the universe? Get lost, kiddo. Get out of here. <laughs> That's like like some monk in like England who's but his entire life devoted to the words of God, and then and then the king just goes and says, "Marriage and 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 divorce are now my decision." <laughs> you can't do that. It's supposed to be God's decision. I've been studying this my entire life. How dare you? 
Who who are you thinking of? Because I think you're thinking of a very specific person that Henry VIII killed. Uh, was it Thomas More? I I I I actually, if I'm going to be completely <laughs> honest, I actually couldn't remember Henry VIII, and that's why I was very vague. Because <laughs> uh, you're thinking of you're thinking of Saint Thomas More. <laughs> Uh, I mean, he wasn't a monk, but he's a Catholic saint now um, who was killed by Henry VIII for refusing to, you know, submit to his new <laughs> Anglican ways. He's convicted of treason and killed. Blessed. Absolutely blessed. <laughs> They're like, yes, everyone, everyone who gives a big middle finger to other religions, you're a saint in my book, says the Pope. <laughs> he's also the guy who wrote the book utopia and started like the utopia genre so there's a there's a fun fact anyway anyway um taxing the great i i guess i guess i'll keep reading here because let's see how he's overthrown let's do it uh thus the terms insanity or madness possibly were the contemporary definition describing the monarch's actions according to the following retanikosan era accounts King Taxon was described as insane. However, all, with the Burmese threat still prevalent, a strong ruler was needed on the throne. Finally, a faction led by Prayasan, or Prayasan Prayasan Khaburi, seized the capital. A coup d'etat removed, removing Taxon from the throne consequently took place. Prayasan attacked Tonburi and took control within one night. King Taxon surrendered to the rebels without resistance and requested to be allowed to join the monkhood in Wat Chiang. However, the disturbance in Tonburi widely spread with killing and looting prevalent. When the coup occurred, General Chao Praya Chakri was away fighting in Cambodia. But he quickly returned to the Thai capital following being informed of the coup. Upon having returned to the capital, the general extinguished the coup through arrests, investigations, and punishments. Peace was then restored in the capital. According to the Royal Thai Chronicles, General Chao Praya Chakri decided to put the deposed Taxon to death. Chao Praya Chakri thought that the deposed king acted improperly and unjustly, which had caused great pain for the kingdom, so it was unavoidable that he be executed. The chronicle stated that, while being taken to the executing venue, Taxon asked for an audience with General Chao Praya Chakri, but was turned down by the general. Taxon was beheaded in front of Wichai Prasit Fortress on Wednesday, April 10. 1782, and his body was buried at Wat Bong Yi Rue Tai. Then seized control of the capital and declared himself king together with establishing the House of Chakri. Yeah, we'll stop there. So this guy, it seems like he was just given a position where I can reestablish Crazy King or I cannot. And he chose not. He didn't even, he didn't even overthrow him. Like, someone else overthrew him. He actually saved the day, put, got rid of those guys, and then he was put in a weird moral dilemma where technically this guy's the king, but would I not be actively participating in further further harming the country by reinstating him? And so okay, he made well, the by to put not it, do that. I'm gonna take the other side here, Evan, and say okay. <laughs> <laughs> You're you're calling it a moral dilemma. I'm calling it the issue where, you know, the king is deposed, there's chaos everywhere. You've come home with an army into the capital, and you are the guy with military force over the capital of the kingdom. I'm going to take the <laughs> anti-Ratanikosan house approach and say, maybe he just saw the best opportunity to take power for himself and used it brilliantly. Here's, 
he pulled very, a Caesar. How, I was I was about to say how very Caesar of him. Um, <laughs> you know, Jacob, I'd be inclined to agree with you, and to an extent, I'd assume you're right. After all, it is said, absolute power does corrupt absolutely. But that doesn't change the fact that even if what he did was inherently self-serving, which it was, that it was also inherently better for the kingdom than reinstating the crazy king. Am I am I wrong? No, you're not wrong. You're not wrong. I mean, obviously the kingdom did all right after that because uh, the dynasty held up pretty true. well. And they never got colonized except by Japan um in world war ii but <laughs> Some, something no something. european colonization enough to have national pride about that so something something the ends justify the means they never got thailand they never got thailand. <laughs> <laughs> so to sum up jacob everything is muddled and nobody's perfect right um also i'd like to point out that there is a traditional method of execution of Thai royalty <laughs> that oh. is that is linked here. Oh yes, uh, which Wikipedia says the execution of Thai royalty was the process of executing Thai royalty by means of one sandalwood cudgel or more upon his or her neck or stomach. It was the ceremony most frequently performed in Thai history from the Ayutthaya period to the initial period of. Ritanakosan. This kind of execution has not been performed since the reign of King Mongkut and has officially been abolished by the first criminal code of Thailand propagated in 1881 by King Chulalongkorn. But there is an official method for killing <laughs> members of the royal family uh, historically in Thailand. So there's a nice fact for you. That's incredible. <laughs> so yeah, um, that's that's our commentary on Tax and the Great. I, I like Southeast Asian history. I'm finding that more and more. It keeps coming up, but because because it's fun. It's it's one of those things too where it's very unapproachable, not just because of the names, but because we know nothing about it. Like most people know nothing about it at all. But the only reason why like European history is so accessible is because how much we already know as base knowledge from what we've learned, which makes it really easy to get into other uh, topics that are related to it, right? So the more we talk about Southeast Asia and Southeast Asian history, the easier and easier it is to really delve into the topics and understand the the historical context around them because we've already learned other things about the history. So it's the more we talk about it, the better it gets, Jacob. And uh, on 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 the subject of names, <laughs> um, Taxon the Great has one of the longest names I've ever seen. Like when we we hear about him as Taxon Maharaj, that's like that's like his short title of Taxon the Great. But his full royal title, I just put it into a word counter, is forty three words long. Jacob, and includes titles like Buddha. Ja- no, no, so... no, Jacob, say it, say his name, say it, say his name, Jacob. Oh gosh, I'm gonna, okay. I'm gonna time this. I'm gonna time this. Wait, wait, wait. I'm gonna time <laughs> to, how to long any it's... Thai listeners. Very sorry. For what's about ta- to happen i'm gonna time this in order to make my point about uh the lack of east asian conquest of the world <laughs> all right three two one prasi sanpet somdet boromam tamikarat ramita bodhi uh krapat pawan raja bodenter hari hari ta to people 
Mahasatan. It took you one minute and 11 seconds to say that name, Jacob. <laughs> and I probably butchered most of the words. <laughs> so what what you just heard here, folks, was someone who is is not of the country, uh, uh, of this of this leader, trying to pronounce their name, their full name, right? So this oh, and is keep my... in mind, Thai is a tonal language. I have no idea the tones on a single one of these. Yeah, so, so it's uh, also extra difficult. It's all wrong. So, so, so my, my intention with this is to, what you just heard folks was, yeah, someone who does not speak the language perfectly or know the tones, uh, try and pronounce the name of the ruler. So imagine this guy conquers you. It will take you a very long time, if ever, to obtain a national identity of agreeing with this conquering because you can't even pronounce his name. And for that reason, Southeast Asians failed to conquer China. (laughs) Where is Koine Tai? (laughs) <laughs> it's too hard to pronounce names this has been my ted talk thank you for coming all right <laughs> i i think that i think that concludes our thai adventure for today time to get to the colonial powers um it, it's time for the gospel of jacob so last time in swahili series we talked about some explorers uh who went and visited the Kilwa Sultanate and the Ajuran Kingdom that conquered it. And, you know, Ibn Battuta and Zheng He were nice guys. They might they might have had their own motives, but they weren't going to take over anything. All of that changed in 1498, when a little fella named Vasco da Gama decided, time to go around Africa, and a completely <laughs> new age of exploration began. Wait, which colonialism was worse? Southeast Asian colonialism, African colonialism, or American colonialism? I'd say the Americas because it was just straight up population replacement in a lot of places. And cultural replacement. Yeah. Which lasted to this day. It was far more destructive on the indigenous people than in Southeast Asia or Africa. All right. But we don't want to do genocide Olympics here, so I'm not going to focus on that <laughs> anymore. <laughs> Jeez. (laughs) You should cut that. You should actually cut that. Maybe. (laughs) (laughs) I'll just I'll just I'll just beep it. I'll just a long beep over the entire thing. (laughs) Anyway. Anyway, Portugal. So in the fourteen hundreds, far away from Africa, something else was going on in a place called Europe. And specifically what was going on was the Ottomans. And the Ottoman Empire um, expanded and took Constantinople in 1453, as we all know. And issues started to come with trading. Once this new empire monopolized all of the eastward trade for Europe and Mediterranean societies, they could tax the hell out of it. And so people in the Iberian Peninsula, specifically in the kingdoms of Castile and Portugal, began thinking, hmm, maybe there's other ways to get our spices. Mm-hmm. And so you might have heard of this this one fella named Christopher Columbus. He had this stupid decision that the world 
is round, which everyone already agreed with, so it's really not that stupid. But like, <laughs> um, he decided, let's go west. And he, he, you know, had some success that he didn't mean to have. He succeeded in the wrong thing uh, and found new places for the emerging Spanish Empire to, to colonize that weren't the ones he was looking for. Another fella by the name of Vasco, Vasco da Gama from Portugal decided... Well, maybe we can get to India by sailing all the way around Africa. And so he did that. Uh, he sailed, he set sail he in July 8th, Africa. July 8th, 1497. Oh, I should add, there's this, there's this, there was this rumor. Because, you know, if you live in Europe and you keep going south and the world gets hotter, you, you start to think maybe, maybe the world just gets hotter and hotter the further south you go. That's there's incredible. this old, like, map rumor that maybe if you... St- went all the way to the bottom of africa the seas would be boiling and your ships would burn <laughs> wait wait new so... new fantasy world idea <laughs> <laughs> that that actually sounds like a really fun adventure premise right um but anyway this mad lad this absolute mad lad vasco da gama uh set sail in 19 in 1497 not 1947 whoops um and <laughs> He he followed he followed courses plotted out by previous explorers such as Bartolomeu Diaz, because Portugal had been exploring West Africa for some time. The Atlantic slave trade had already started, unfortunately, and Portugal was an active active pioneer in that. The real point that changed everything about Vasco da Gama's voyage was when he rounded the Cape of Good Hope in South Africa on. 16th of December of that year in 1497. And from that point, he was in the Indian Ocean. He was the first European to sail around Africa and end up in the Indian Ocean. And he came to Mozambique on the Swahili coast in 1498. And this Ajuran Sultanate that we talk about, the Omani Empire that had sort of taken over much of the Swahili states, controlled these ports. And so Dagama Dagama came into this into this system and didn't really know how to interact with the Arab world. And so he wasn't sure if they'd welcome him or not. So he pretended to be a Muslim um, and <laughs> managed brain. to he he was like, I'm not Catholic or anything. I am I'm I'm a good Sunni man. <laughs> and he actually got audience with the Sultan of Mozambique. And so he gave this these these trade goods. Uh, that the ruler didn't see as suitable. He was like, what is this stupid European ware? Um, <laughs> what are these potatoes? Get out of and here. And the the local populace was suspicious of this guy. They're like, we don't really think, we don't really think you're from the Islamic world. You don't strike us <laughs> that way. You don't, um, you don't and this, look And this mob either. formed in Mozambique and drove him out. And oh, so um, he sailed away from the harbor and then in retaliation, he was just sailing away. He fired his cannons into the city. <laughs> Oh my god. <laughs> this guy was just a jerk. Anyway, um they weren't doing too well, and so they needed resources and they decided to become pirates as they were sailing up through Mombasa and Kenya. Nice. Um So they started they start looting all these Arab merchant ships, which are unarmed vessels, because this is a this is a fairly peaceful part of the world controlled by the um Ajuran Sultanate, where you know, unifying empires have meant that you can travel safely. 
Uh, but then, then some Portuguese guy shows up and starts shooting everyone with cannons. And so... Why, why, wild to think there was a time when the Middle East and East Africa was safer than the modern day. <laughs> right? And it was like 500 <laughs> years ago. <laughs> and so he goes into Mombasa and once again is met with hostility and departs. And this time, like, I fully understand. Like, these people have already been dealing with it. <laughs> <laughs> So he goes up to Malindi, up further up the coast, which uh, turned out to be a little friendlier because they were in conflict with the leaders of Mombasa. <laughs> and, um, you know, I guess they liked that he had just shot a cannon at a bunch of them for no reason. And so <laughs> they contracted him. They basically said, hey, we could use you. You want to you wanna sail to India for us and, uh, you know, help us out on some errands and... Dagama was like, hey, I was doing that anyway. Sure. And so with a little extra funding, he he rides the um the monsoon winds, which local people tell him about. They're like, yeah, there's these cool winds that you can just cross the Indian Ocean just naturally. They're, they're wild. Uh, so he does that. And ta-da, it works out really well. And so he arrives in Calicut, which is today known as Kozhikode. So... Just, what? just in case, it's just in case any Indian people are wondering. Um, yeah, because I didn't get that. Definitely. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Um, uh, yeah, so they greeted him with hospitality. They were nice. They were like, "Hey, cool. We like traders. This is a trading city." And Dagama asks, or Dagama gets asked by local officials who haven't seen a Portuguese person in their port before. They're like. What brought you here? And he says, in search of Christians and spices. And they're like, well, we got both of those things. Turns out, turns out, through the Middle Eastern spice trade with India, there had been a long Christian population in India. Uh, I mean, it was very different from the Western Catholicism that Dagama was used to. But, That's hey, crazy. there were Christians in the city. Um, and, ta-da, they had lots of spices because this was actually India where they have loads of spices. They did uh, it. Suck it, Columbus. He was like, <laughs> he was like, there's a 75% chance this is another continent. <laughs> I mean, considering what had happened in 1492 right? with, with the neighboring country, you know. Insane. But hey, Dagama did it. He actually did it. So for all his sort of jerky behavior to random ports he found, he did it. Uh, and he used the monsoon winds to go back. And it was a much quicker trip home he went to the somali city of mogadishu and visited the adruan empire's core yeah and then he sailed home but this set the course for portuguese explorers to start thinking hmm no that's some nice land out there don't do it i i wonder no i wonder um turns out in 1494 uh before dagama's voyage there was this other this other dealio that was made that that aided the empire. And we've talked about it before, but the Treaty of Tordesillas, or Tordesillas, if you're... I, thought it, I always thought it was Tordesillas. Probably because probably you're getting it from your French sources. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, I'm wrong. It's just, I always... <laughs> uh, Portugal and Spain had already de- agreed on how to split up the earth, and all of Africa was in Portuguese domain as far as this treaty was concerned. Nice. So... Portugal is about to go I mean, ham on this I mean, territory. <laughs> By the start of the 1500s, 
the Portuguese were fighting battles in the Indian Ocean. Um, they actually fought and destroyed at the Battle of Diu in 1509 uh, the combined Mamluk and Gujarati fleets as Manuel I tried to, you know, colonize the East, basically. And they established they established their colonies. The the Cape of Good Hope and Gujarat ended up having ended up being the sort of boundaries for this new project between India and South Africa, where the Portuguese would would achieve naval dominance. And uh, Portugal began in the early 1500s making inroads into Africa itself from this east coast. And so from the Swahili states, they they went to Sofala and Kilwa and established trading expeditions, uh, established a sort of settled presence there. They sent they sent these this new group of people they called the Sertanejos, the backwoodsmen, to live alongside Swahili traders and travel inland. And so they traveled mm. inland to where the Mwene Mutapa Empire was, which was an empire that was sort of successor to uh like great zimbabwe and all that uh on the inland part of africa and they would even take up service among shona kings as interpreters and political advisors so the whole Mm. goal was get into the local politics learn things for for later and then conquer them (laughs) and you know these local people are like cool new foreign traders we're gonna get richer this helps but little did they know this weird little rectangle on the other side of the world was about to take over. <laughs> nobody, so, nobody expects the Portuguese Inquisition. And in the 1530s, these, these Portuguese traders and prospectors uh, went into the interior and they looked for gold because of course they did. Um, and they set up all these forts. And so uh, they actually man- made it to the Zambezi River and they set up there with that river as a highway inland to control the gold trade. And of course... This was a real gold trade. Um, this wasn't some sort of El Dorado because we know that there was important gold mines in the Shona states by Great Zimbabwe and Mwene Mutapa, etc., that traded with the Swahili and supplied them with their gold they used in their trade in the Indian Ocean world. So these guys were following respected sources and not, yeah. not some El Dorado shenanigans. None of that. Um, so they learned all sorts of things about, about this territory and then the Portuguese decided, all right, we'll start doing land grants and promise colonial colonial settlers these this land if they go there and start legislating it out. So the Portuguese would go up, set up a colony called a prazo. They would be they were originally meant to be held by Portuguese, but because these people became settled, a lot of them actually mixed with African populations. And so you ended up with and Indian populations too, because many of those were in the Swahili trading centers. Mm-hmm. So you ended up with this sort of mixed Portuguese African Indian elite with uh these large slave armies because the slave trade is going on, and these armies were called Chikunda. And so the, their influence expands and expands and expands. And they, they battle with the Arabs because the Arabs are like, we, we like our trading dominance with the Swahili. Excuse me. Uh, so <laughs> the port, the Portuguese start taking forts one after the other. Between 1500 and 1700, all sorts of military exp- expeditions go with these Prazos, these Prazos land grants. And one of the most key places, which I find amazing, 
is that there's a place called Fort Jesus, and it is apparently apparently was the dominant military center of this colonial expedition. Uh, That's incredible. Not a creative name, <laughs> but a pretty dope name. There was some back and forth. I don't I don't want to go too far into details because there is a lot of expeditions and a lot of back and forth. But this wasn't one sided by any means. The Portuguese had trouble with Omani Arabs. Um, as well as local Swahili people who didn't like these, you know, lone traders. And it was like expeditions to the Americas. These expeditions didn't necessarily have full armies. They had a few explorers who would do their best to make things happen in local politics to get their way. And so it wasn't some sort of guns, germs, and steel absolute dominance going on here because these these expeditions are, are tentative and risky in their execution. It was just guns and steel. The germs have been around for us. <laughs> <laughs> it was Degama's cannons just shooting at cities. There you go. Just getting salty while you leave places and cannoning their buildings. Uh, ah, memories. <laughs> but you can still apparently see a lot of these old Portuguese forts. They tend to be on islands off the coast, which is exactly what, you know, the Kilwa Sultanate and other powers had done. They'd monopolized trade by building island fortresses and managing the sea lanes outside yeah. of them. And so yeah. the Portuguese just kind of followed up on previous imperial models in the region. There's a really interesting um, cultural layover from that time as well, which is uh, Nando's. Not specifically Nando's, but if you've heard like of Nando's. Like the restaurant chain? <laughs> like the restaurant chain Nando's, yeah. Because <laughs> they serve uh, Portuguese-style chicken. Right? right, but they're really known for their peri peri chicken, peri peri sauce, and peri peri is a spice that comes from Mozambique. Is it now? Yeah. I didn't so, know this. so Nando's whole aesthetic is very African, but with a mixture of Portuguese culinary, uh, and it's all and that only exists because of of Portugal doing what you're just explaining right now. It's just a fascinating little piece of, uh something that exists because of this yeah portugal would become the sort of dominant indian ocean power for a little bit until the dutch came in and decided we want to be the dominant tiny european nation ruling the other side of the world instead and they did that um and we've already talked about that before but (laughs) um long story short things got bad (laughs) when the Portuguese finally achieved dominance on the Swahili coast. They used a lot of African forced labor in the form of slavery in mines and plantations. They brutally suppressed rebellions and they, you know, forced, forced some religion and government reforms on the local populations. And actually Mozambique didn't get its independence from uh, Portugal until 1975. So this was really late. Jesus Christ. <laughs> um, they ruled the territory from, well, 1498 was when it was claimed, but it was kind of gradually enveloped until 1975. Right. So that's a long time. Um, they left their influence on this region very heavily. Mozambique still speaks Portuguese to this day, along with Swahili. Um, Although the countries to the north of it in Kenya and Tanzania are more Swahili intense for obvious reasons. Uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> they were colonized later um, by the British, actually. 
which didn't last as long. That was during the scramble for Africa in the late 1800s. But yeah, I think it's this fascinating colonial venture. I don't want to get too deep, in, too much deeper into it right now than we already have. But it's something I'll be personally looking into more, uh, these early African settlements. Because as someone who's really interested in like early American settlement, uh, it's an interesting parallel case. Yeah, I thought, what happened to a time where if your neighbor offended you, you could fire a cannon at his house? I thought this was America. <laughs> this ain't the Ajuran Empire. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, that was that was the Swahili coast. Yeah, that's our story. Um, speaking of which, uh, for future Gospel of Jacob, there's a certain... <laughs> several themes here will connect to our next series, including colonization... And that stimulus for exploration at the beginning called the Ottoman Empire, uh, because as we go into the origins of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, um, oh, damn. all the spice with that, uh, these things are going to be relevant. So get your buttholes ready. Look out for that. <laughs> <laughs> all right. I guess that leaves it with me then. Yeah. What are we talking about with Rapa Nui today? Here's a weird one. So it is, it is, uh, well, tell me, tell me your understanding of the history of what happened to that island, your general understanding. Well, there was a volcano that went boom and the island was there. Um, I mean, (laughs) with the people, Jacob. (laughs) (laughs) And then according to legend, this guy named Hotumatua, if I remember right, led some settlers, uh, at an unknown date, but it was one of the last places in Polynesia colonized. So I think it must have been 1200s um, and settled the island. Uh, and then, you know, they did all the heads and stuff. And eventually, eventually, the English showed up and took it for a while until Chile got it somehow. I don't know the history there. <laughs> so that is uh, all correct. Congratulations. <laughs> but uh, what I what I was looking for there is, is it's pretty commonly passed around that at least I've heard this, that the island was extinct when it was found. There was no one on it, <laughs> that they were all dead, uh, because I've also heard that uh, all their trees were gone. All of them. There were no trees. It was completely deforested. And the very commonly, uh, very commonly passed around idea that the reason why all the trees are gone was because they cut down all the trees so they could roll their big rock heads everywhere. And and they were so enamored with their rock heads that they neglected their forests to the point that they cut down every single tree in the forest. And and that's why their population dwindled so so bad. That that is uh besides the besides the them not actually being alive when Europeans got there, which is absolutely untrue. And I don't know how anyone said that. Considering we actually have like a Rapa Nui language we can refer to and talk about. Exactly. I feel like (laughs) that would Um, be hard. But besides that, it is, it is very commonly purveyed that, that it was because of the Moai statues that they had no trees. And this isn't entirely correct. Uh, It sounds entirely wrong. In fact, it's entirely incorrect. Yeah. (laughs) And uh, also on that note, uh, so I'm going to go into both what happened to the trees, uh, but also what happened to the people, Jacob, because while the people were not completely killed off by any means, uh, they very nearly did go insti- extinct at one point. 
And Ooh. yeah, it was partially because of the trees, uh, but more partially because of something else, which I will get into. So starting us off here, yeah, they landed on the island. They did their thing, Jacob. They they loved it. They made their, their rocks. Uh, they also brought Polynesian rats, which have this uh, nice little characteristic where they eat they eat tree seeds. So lots Uh-oh. of there, there's lots of fossil evidence of about ten percent of the trees I read somewhere were of the fossils had like chew marks on them from the rats. <laughs> and there's tons and tons of uh, there's tons and tons of like fossil evidence of seeds that are all just eaten as well. So the understanding from what we can tell is that it was a combination of of their population just growing to an extent where they needed a lot of, of wood for for their housing and for, for their actual lodgings and, and for boats, for fishing, uh, as well as the Polynesian rats uh, having a good chunk of negative impact on the tree population actually being able to repropagate. Uh, in order for the trees to reach a, a kind of adult size, it takes about 100 years for one of the species wow. on the island. Yeah. So there's so, a lot of chance to get that messed up. Exactly. So uh, what happened to the island was at one point, by the, by the time of European arrival in 1722, the island's population was around 2,000 to 3,000 people. A hundred years before then, there were 15,000 people. Wow. Yeah. So what happened to the people? great question the trees actually happen to the people so what happened to 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 the people of rapa nui was at a certain point they depleted the tree population uh not all the trees but to the point where there were not nearly as many as there used to be which caused multiple issues the first of which they couldn't make fishing boats anymore or very had a very hard time getting the wood necessary to make them so that kind of sucks if you eat a lot of seafood (laughs) Yeah. Which I assume if you live on an island, you eat a lot of seafood. Especially an island in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> so that was the first, one of the first major issues that happened. Uh, the other being, because there were so few trees on the island, uh, farmable land actually began eroding. Because there weren't enough roots keeping everything together. Uh, which also led to a further decline in their ability to make enough food for everyone. And so in just 100 years, they their, their population dwindled to a fifth the size it used to be. <laughs> that all happened before the Europeans even arrived. So at this point, that kind of explains, uh, I think, what actually happened to the trees. It had nothing to do with the, with the Moais so much as just they have too many people and they use too much wood. It is just the same way we run an any resource. It's not some crazy thing like they were insane, just only needed to build these rocks and roll them. In fact, as you've shown me before, Jacob, there's been some experimental archaeology uh, done by pe- some university students in Oregon <laughs> wherein they proved that you could move the Moai statues without even rolling them on locks. Yeah. So maybe they did that. Maybe they didn't even use one. Not the point, though. The point of this, and everything I'm trying to get to, Jacob, is what do you mean by the extinction of the people? Well, what I mean by the extinction of the people is, sure, they'd already been dropped to 2,000 to 3,000. That's not near anywhere near extinction. But what happened after that is actually tragic so at a certain point when when after europeans showed up the situation on the island really got bad there was like a societal collapse 
their their religion, their 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 belief in worshiping the chieftains of the past through the Moai statues, uh, fell fell and and was replaced by a bird cult. Bird it, cult. It literally called it the. It's literally the ancestor cult ended, and it made way for the Birdman cult. Specific. It's called the Birdman cult. Bless the concept of mana. Uh, invested in hereditary leaders and, and the Moai statues was was being essentially pushed aside for this idea of of worshiping or not worshiping but giving leadership to people who could prove their 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 benefit of of the of the of the ancestors through combat so these warrior classes ended up taking over and and causing a lot of strife over time and things just progressively got worse like the society completely changed and things just took a really bad turn for the worst and and as such the population continued to dwindle from after european arrival uh because of that and you might be like okay but they're still around right yeah they are still around it's still not even that bad it gets worse jacob because then this thing happens where about 1500 people are abducted or killed uh by this thing called blackbirding and uh, it involves yeah black <laughs> that just sounds spooky by itself <laughs> blackbirding is the coercion of people through deception and or kidnapping to work as unpaid or poorly paid laborers in countries distant to their native land uh ah yes so that is what happened to the people of rapa nui about so about 1500 people were either abducted or killed uh, between 1862 and 1863 with about 1,408 of them working as indentured servants in Peru. Peru just went up and stole half of the population of the island. Yikes. Which was 3,000 people this time. Yeah. Only about That'll destroy a, a culture. Almost. Only about a dozen people eventually returned to Easter Island from, from Peru. And... 12? A only, dozen? Only about a 12 what? people came back. Yep. Whoa. And they brought smallpox with them, Jacob. No. Which decimated the remaining population, the other no. half. Only 111 people, only 111 Rapa Nui people at one point in time were left alive after that. 111. They were that close to being entirely extinct as a culture. Their oral history lost forever. Everything we know about, just gone. That close. And uh, they're okay now. Everything's, everything's hunky-dory. <laughs> they survived it, Jacob. They survived an entire ecological collapse on their island, an entire societal collapse following the arrival of the Europeans. Uh, they survived an entire slave trade taking away half of their entire population, and then and then a subsequent smallpox epidemic that killed the other half of their population. They survived it all, Jacob. They are the most close to extinct population that I can call of a cultural group that I can think of in the world that still exists today. <laughs> that has, that has rebounded. I think that is the closest that any cultural group has rebounded from that I can think of. It is insane. Um, and that, that, that was the, that was where I wanted to get to with here's a weird one. I wanted to backdate show just a misconception about the trees to get to this point, which is 111 people repopulating their, their culture. You know, I'm proud of them. I'm proud of them too good for them uh so that's that's the weird one huh i i i guess see i i've always heard about rapa nui in relation to archaeology and like the heads i know a lot about the moai uh, because we've talked about them a lot but 
I, I've never really known the modern history of what happened after it was discovered that fine Eastern Easter day by Europeans. So now you, now you know, it's fascinating. Now, now you, <laughs> now, now you know the true tragedy, but also their, their, their triumphant, their triumphant success at successfully bre- continuing to breed. Bless. Which, bless. Indeed. Thank you. We, we, we don't want to lose your culture. We appreciate you. Speaking of losing cultures, um, <laughs> right now we have a global emergency going on. Yes. Um, yes. yes, we do. And, uh, well, the world is about to change. So, um, Evan, when did you first hear about coronavirus that you can remember? Oh, um, I'm sure I heard it in passing, but the first time I remember uh, reading about it, I think it was sometime near like the end of February because I started seeing like jokes or not the end of February, sorry, the end of January. Cause I started seeing jokes about how uh, 2020 was already awful because we nearly got into war and all that. And now there's a virus starting in China. I remember, <laughs> I think that was my first uh, greeting to it. I, I definitely remember hearing about it like late last year uh, when it popped out, in December 2019 in China, I think I saw an article about it and probably shared it. I was like, oh, there's an epidemic going on in Wuhan. A few months later, it has absolutely changed our world. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think everyone everyone knows that. There's there's not going to be a listener here who's not familiar with it. So we don't have to explain that too much. But <laughs> it's it's been a fascinating comparative with uh, the, the, the 1918 influenza pandemic which is often called spanish flu which is a misleading name because uh it didn't seem to originate in spain we don't know where it originated from but it first seemed to be majorly reported in the united states it might have been from china but china also seems to be one of the areas that was less affected than many others Mm. what what is clear is it had already gone fairly global in the interconnected world of World War One, and apparently hit allied nations first by the time it really got attention. The early disease didn't get a lot of attention, uh, which we kind of saw with with coronavirus. We were like, this is a local affair. China was like, it was a local affair. Trump said, we don't have to worry about it that much. Yeah. Um, and then, boom, it wasn't a local affair. But uh, maybe we should maybe we should catch up on what the 1918 pandemic was because a lot of people might not remember. I think that's great. Yeah, I think it's we can especially look at the differences between how with today's technology, as the coronavirus spread into places like Italy, and we saw the effects of what they needed to do. It kind of allowed other countries to prepare a lot quicker and better for it, rather than I imagine in a time like the Spanish flu, where your country's probably not going to or the people of your country probably aren't going to have the the outcry necessary to cause some major lockdown until it's already hit the country because they're probably <laughs> not even going to know about it. The United States has an interesting position in both in that in the case of 1918, uh, the U.S. was the first country to report it. So it's the U.S. is probably the most likely country that quote-unquote Spanish flu started. Um, <laughs> the American flu. But... It went worldwide very quickly, especially as the U.S. was sending troops to Europe. Uh, it hit Europe very quickly. 
Um, it was in military camps that it often first propagated. All these troops brought from all over the country, put together into a tight space, and then sent in little boats over the sea to battlefields with poor health conditions. The military system of World War One, because it popped up in January 1918, about 11 months before the end of World War One, and definitely played a role in how the late war played out. So much so that you can, it's been pointed out before, uh, Extra Credits does a, a fairly good job with, with this, that um, it hit the Allies first, hurt them, and Germany did very well, and then seems to have jumped sides once the Allies calmed down with it and hit the Germans, and the Allies had a good pushback. And obviously we can't reduce, we can't reduce World War One to being at the, the whims of, of a virus, but... but definitely played a role especially if you consider the fact that the h1n1 influenza virus between 1918-1920 and that's what it was the um same one that caused the swine flu pandemic in 2009 swine flu all over again killed more people than both world war one and world war ii combined so think about that for a second the estimates are varied for very widely between 17 million and 50 million people but like, let's look up. Let's look up the. I said we wouldn't do genocide Olympics. Let's look up the <laughs> the, the World War death toll. World War One had about um, World War One on the Allied power side had about five million military dead and about four million civilian wounded. Uh, four million military dead on the Central Powers and four million civilian. So let's say that's eight. Actually, it's closer on the Allied side to six million. So we've got ten plus plus um, eight. So eighteen million total, which is still really close to the low estimate of <laughs> the influenza pandemic. Um, World War II's death toll is a little higher. We have sixteen million on the Allied side, and as far as military and 45 million civilians and as far as the axis 8 million military dead and 4 million civilian dead totals are 61 million and 12 million so world war 2 actually might be deadlier um why i've been lied to now I've been lied to. you want to see some real some real genocide olympics here i just looked up the 10 deadliest world events in human history uh atlantic slave trade at number 10 15 million uh, but the the bottom, number nine, Jacob, number eight, number seven, are all just different revolutions and wars in ancient China. <laughs> the late Yuan warfare and transition of Ming Dynasty, 30 million people died. Uh, the An Lushan Rebellion, 36 million people died against the Tang Dynasty. Uh, the Taiping Rebellion, 40 million people died. Is <laughs> China has always been an extremely populated country. It's a lot of people. Yeah. Um, I I found the article you're on. So there's two separate articles, one for anthropogenic disasters and one for natural disasters. So we got to put them together here. Uh, they have a pandemic section on here somewhere. Deadliest pandemic. Tuberculosis holds number one. 1800 to present with... Uh, why do they write it one times ten to the ninth power? You don't need that. That's <laughs> <laughs> um, 
but that would be uh, a billion deaths. And then smallpox after that at 300 million approximately. 200 million for measles. 100 million for the second plague pandemic, which included the Black Death. Mm-hmm. 80 million to 250 million for malaria. 17 million to 114 million for Spanish flu. So, uh, yeah. So basically, the, the moral of this story is... There's a to, lot of ways to, to jump die. a little. Don't <laughs> bad things have happened, but like take it seriously because uh Spanish flu only lasted two years and uh, it's up there in the top ten deadliest diseases of all time. So, so keep it in wash mind. Wash your hands. Wash your goddamn hands. <laughs> or Jacob will find you. I will find you and I will pronounce Thai names directly into your ear. <laughs> oh god a fate worse than death no <laughs> oh god where does this leave us um this leaves us with dinosaurs chinese so dinosaurs let's do i it. uh i backstory so when we did our um first special guest episode uh he asked if we could uh if if I could eventually expand on this internship that I had in China a long time ago, uh, which I did have. Uh, so I, before I was really into archaeology, I was really into paleontology. And kind of in that transition phase, I managed to get an internship in Sugong, Sichuan, China back in 2015. Do you get, um, do you get like shunned by fellow archaeologists for jumping the fence for paleontology i imagine there's like a major feud between the two no i mean i mean let's let's be real archaeologists and paleontologists love each other's stuff like (laughs) they do similar stuff they might they might get mad when you mix the two up but like they're the same but they're the same they're (laughs) they're they're using some similar methods and they're both into old stuff you won't meet an archaeologist who just doesn't like dinosaurs. That doesn't happen. You also don't meet people who just don't like dinosaurs. So This is true. And if you do um, not like dinosaurs, I don't believe you exist. Yeah. <laughs> or or you're one of those weird dinosaur deniers because there is a group out there for that. But um there's a movement. Anyway. <laughs> it exists. It's they they think that people get money or something from dinosaurs. I don't I don't understand. But yes. um big dinosaur. <laughs> Is threatened by your denialism. <laughs> the bone. Anyway, the wars were too crazy. Were two dudes with a brilliant scheme, and then every every museum since has just been too embarrassed to admit that the bones are fake. <laughs> Which is why Edward Drinker Cope died um, penniless in a bedroom with a pile of bones because he was making. Bank. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. So I was just going to talk about Jurassic China and this beautiful ecosystem that I dug up because I, well, I interned there. They, they didn't have a program for me. So they were like, sure, we'll make one for you. If you show up, you can do work. So I was like, cool. And I cleaned some dinosaur bones out of the rock, three vertebrae belonging to a Dachshund Pusaurus, which is a type of sauropod or long necked dinosaur. So uh, where to start with dinosaurs? This 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 section is happening because I wanted to talk dinosaurs today. So, <laughs> um, let's talk about sauropods because I worked with sauropods and they are the coolest animals 
and everyone should everyone should know why that is so sauropods are the long necks if you watched long land before time they call them long necks and it's a whole group of dinosaurs that includes apatosaurus brachiosaurus all sorts that you probably know argentinosaurus some really big ones shunosaurus which is from the dig site i worked at and had a club tail the long necky boys <laughs> the thing about sauropods is some of them got really, really big. So the largest dubious genus is potentially Amphicelius. And if if it is a proper dinosaur, which is debated because it's kind of dubious, it has the potential to have weighed up to... I have to actually find an amp. You fool. <laughs> You don't memorize. Oh, you haven't memorized all information you learned during your internship the, seven ah, years ago. The the weight is not in the song. Um. Anyway, this dinosaur would have weighed, you know, comparable to a whale on land, um, and measured on on a low estimate on a low estimate a hundred thirty feet long, which which for our metric friends Jesus. is something like forty meters. Uh, crazy so 60 meters on the high end if you know anything about animal physiology the bigger an animal gets the more heat it produces and dinosaurs are warm-blooded animals we know this because of their growth curves that we can see in the rings and their bones Um, they don't match the continuous growth of cold-blooded animals they match the curve of a high metabolism warm-blooded animal such as a mammal or bird that means they're producing their own body heat and if you have something the size of a whale walking around in the hot sun in the Jurassic when it's warmer than today, there were no ice caps. We can do it, guys. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, you're going to get really hot. So Yeah, you're going to get the hot. Sauropod, the sauropod body design is all about losing heat. So if you notice something about long necks and tails... You know, there's there's some obvious reasons you probably learned as a kid. Sauropods have incredibly long tails because because they um, you know want to fend off predators. And sure, that makes sense. If you see if you have an annoying predator trying to eat your babies, you can thwap them with your tail and destroy them. Um, you're like five meter long tail. <laughs> yeah, it's you, you're for, loaded. Um, for, for for reference, by the way, uh, the tallest giraffe ever recorded. His name was George. He was 19 feet tall. That, the tallest giraffe ever, is 5.8 meters. Get on the dinosaur's level, man. Get on the... (laughs) This, the tallest giraffe in the world was probably not even as long as the tallest dinosaur's tail. (laughs) That's one thing. One thing also about the long necks. So before I get into how this relates to heat, body heat, um, about the long necks... If you look at really old dinosaur art, you can see noodly sauropod necks just kind of noodling around. And Incredible. it's still pretty common for sort of pop culture to show them as sticking straight up. Most of them, except for a few like the brachiosaurs, etc., would have had necks that went relatively forward and maybe just a little bit up. And the reason for that is heads get heavy, but also the vertebra in the neck are very stick. They're very long. And most of these dinosaurs are eating vegetation that's about at their hip height anyway. So even without a long neck, they're tall enough to probably eat it. So I mean, why the long neck? 
when your body is already like six meters in the air already taller than the tallest giraffe's head i mean you don't really need to raise your head any higher do you right so the reason they're so long is what for one thing it helps balance out the body you've got a long tail and a long neck and they're sticking out a long distance from the central core. But mostly, having just an insane amount of surface area it means that you can actually lose heat very effectively. So, what sauropods' necks are, in one sense, is presumably just a massive extra use of space skin space to just have more surface to lose heat in the cold high up air so brilliant because like think about other large animals we know today the largest animal alive today is on land is the african elephant and elephants have the same the same design they have ears that are giant and flat and impractical for the purposes of just you know hearing like, they can hear. They can hear, obviously. But you don't need ears that gigantic and floppy to do it. Wait. You need ears that gigantic and floppy to flap against the air to have a lot of surface area to lose excess heat. I'm going to I'm gonna have to cancel my plastic surgery appointment. I, I've been misled. <laughs> <laughs> no Elvin Evan today. Damn it. <laughs> <laughs> what other funny, uh, what other incredible Chinese dinosaurs can you tell me about? Um... So, have you ever heard of Twajungasaurus? Absolutely not. <laughs> um, so, basically, you know Stegosaurus. Everyone knows Stegosaurus. Yeah. Uh, Stegosaurus is this absolute chonk that has plates down its back and uh, spikes on its tail called a thagomizer. Um, <laughs> like, that's the actual name. There's an old Gary Larson comic about a caveman where he calls it a thagomizer. And became popular enough about paleontologists, they introduced it as a technical term. Incredible. Um, now that's a weird one. Anyway, stegosaurs are from North America. In Asia, there are a lot of other stegosaurs. They're not as big as stegosaurus, but they've got some interesting features. One of these is Tuajangosaurus, uh, which is from Sichuan, uh, where I worked at. It's got a nice, nice stand in the museum. And they, it just decided, I guess, at some point in development, you know, normal large flat plates suck. I just want a lot of spikes. <laughs> and so its its plates are long as thin and pointier, and it has on its shoulders these long spikes just sticking out. So if you're a predator Whoa. who wants to, to try to eat this thing, like, it's a chunk. It, it could make a good meal. Um... Any side you approach it from is basically going to poke you somehow if you hit it hard enough. You know, so, <laughs> you know why dinosaurs are so goddamn cool? It's because it's like some eight-year-old kid got got told to just make up a bunch of combat lizards that had to fight each other in some <laughs> battle arena, and just came up with these wild, crazy ideas. Like this one's basically got like a shield wrapped around its face and like swords sticking out of it. And this one, it's just covered in spikes and spikes on its shoulders. And, and, and this one's just got a, a, a mouth the size of a car. And it's incredible. I love it. They just evolved to just be better and better at kicking the shit out of each other. See, that's Man. the, that's the wonderful thing is you have to, I, 
paleontology is cool because you have to imagine someone discovering a new one for the first time and going, what the hell? <laughs> right? <laughs> You read about you read about in the 1700s when uh, Mosasaurus was discovered in um, the Netherlands, and they called it the Beast of Maastricht. And these coal miners just dug up this sea monster's skull, this lizard, fifty feet long, and they're just like, "What the hell is what? this?" <laughs> oh, it's like just like compare it, compare it to today's animals. It's not remotely as cool, like. Every major prime apex predator in our world today is some mammal that is strong, pretty quick, has sharp claws and sharp teeth, is pretty furry, and in general is the same by of uh, four-legged shape. They all look, they're all very similar in design, just in execution, they, they differ. Like, bears, lions, cougar, like, they're all, you know what I mean? Like, they're all, like, they're all similar in my mind. They're all carnivorous mammals. They're all carnivorous mammals. They're all, they're all, yeah, right? But just compare that to the differences in dinosaurs. It's well, also, dinosaurs had the time advantage in that one. They from they evolved 230 million years ago and got asteroided 66 million years ago. It's true. Uh, and the birds are still dinosaurs going strong today. So the dinosaurs have been around for 230 million years. And there were some big, there were some big wild mammals as well. Mammals popped up around the same time, but they never got bigger than a large dog while the dinosaurs were dominating the ecological niches. Partly because getting big means that you suddenly get noticed by large predatory dinosaurs. And when they're dominating so hard, dominating, (laughs) you're you're not going to do well. So it took it took an asteroid to wipe out these things, uh, mostly except for the birds. Mm-hmm. for for mammals to really get a chance and so mammals are running on just 66 million years so far of really having the place to themselves which isn't as long so but they're still working on it they're still working on it that's the thing though too they were in they were going in the direction of getting bigger and tougher just like dinosaurs the reason why they didn't is because we showed up there were megafauna there were mega mammals and we hunted them to extinction have you ever heard of uh paraceratherium no. The largest land an- land mammal of all time. It was a relative of the rhinoceros that was insanely tall. It was uh, five meters tall and about seven meters long and weighed between 15 and 20 tons. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> but it was basically, basically a long-necked hornless rhinoceros. Incredible. Larger than a woolly mammoth. Incredible. <laughs> what the hell? I mean, this thing lived long before humans did. It was gone a long time before Australopithecus stood upright. I have a th- I have a theory, Jacob, about this, okay? Okay. Mammals were tiny, right? And it took getting rid of all the big guys, the big dinos, for mammals to grow really big. And the only reason why mammals didn't keep growing big is because of us, right? So here's my theory. What if we got rid of all the mammals, including us? Somehow. Maybe some, like, crazy virus that only affects mammals. Hmm. Would we end up with, like, hmm. with bugs? Would, what, who would take... Who would grow really big, Jacob? <laughs> not... not. I swear, it has nothing to do with the current situation. <laughs> yeah, I have to wonder. <laughs> but, but, like, who would be... Who would be best primed, you know? Like, let's say we... we let's say we reset again. So there were small... 
itty bitty mammals. There were still like the birds, uh, and and there were still like mega bugs in Australia. Like who would grow really big next? Do you think? Did you ever see the really old documentary "The Future Is Wild"? It's like speculative evolution about the far future. I haven't, but I think I watched a video on it. I think you sent it to me, and it was like it's crazy. (laughs) That is one of the weirdest and best binge watches you'll ever go through because it's just it's just speculative it's like it's along the lines of um it's like obviously none of the creatures in it actually exist but it's sort of thought out like well maybe if there's this change in the environment in the future it will drive things this way or yeah uh but eventually the mammals like go into decline and it's i think they have the squids in the far future like mollusks Amazing. become dominant uh it's it's interesting i want a world where octopus is slowly octopi look up just just google right now squibbin future is wild s-q-u-i-b-b-o-n they came up with some wacky stuff squibbin speculation evolution wiki squibbin all right here we go let me see this picture i need to see it (laughs) they're like tree swinging squids oh my god that's so (laughs) i love it I mean, I could see it. We had weird at look. We had weird ass fish come on and turn into lizards. So now that we've got way more intelligent octopus like creatures, who who knows? Maybe maybe if we uh, gave them a good reason, they'd they'd come on land. Maybe. I mean, marsupials were doing pretty well during the dinosaur age. A lot of the small mammals were marsupials. Yeah, when and they dinos- seem to have been outcompeted at some point. So in a lot of different places, things could have gone very differently. What a world to be alive in. What a world to not be alive in. We missed out on so much. Nah, we got a pretty good animal set, let's be honest. We can talk about <laughs> a lot of really cool things. This is true. This is true. So so final final verdict on, on uh, Earth's uh, historical and current day ecological diversity, Jacob, out of 10? Um, today, you know, I'm going to still give it a 10 out of 10. Most of my favorite right. animals are dead, but let's be honest. I can't complain. There's a lot of cool stuff, and I cannot learn all of the animals, and that this is, is this is fair. And you know what? In another million years, when Pangaea has continued to split up even more, uh, there will be even more diverse, probably. Wait until Novo Pangaea, which is a projected supercontinent, when uh, the closure of the Pacific happens. <laughs> Man, that would be wild. <laughs> Think about it. First, there was Pangaea, and life showed up, and, and animals spread around, and they got situated. Then Pangaea split up and gave them all their own little niches and islands to grow in and, to, and build their own specific skill sets. And then Pangea, the Earth brings them all back together again for one final grand battle royale of the species to figure out who is the most invasive species on the planet. <laughs> Can't wait. <laughs> Set your dates, set your calendars, folks. 42 million years from now. Get ready. Oh, that's incredible. I guess that's our episode then. I think so. <laughs> um, Yeah, thanks for joining us, everyone. This one has been a wild ride. It's been a little more chaotic than our normal episodes, but that's perfectly fine. I had fun. I had <laughs> plenty of fun. I hope you guys had fun. Uh, watch the future is wild. Evan should too, because it is. I actually should too for the nostalgia, because I remember seeing that as a kid, being like, "What is this?" <laughs> that can, we'll do that. We'll watch. We'll watch party. 
<laughs> also, listen to our friend Henry's podcast, History of the British Isles. It's a pretty good one. Um, I've listened to a few episodes, and uh, it's going to be one of my new favorites soon, to be honest. I need more time, but pretty soon <laughs> I will be listening to it pretty actively. Raving recommendation from Jacob himself. Lord of the Lord of history and memes. <laughs> uh stay safe folks. Wash your hands. Peace.